try this without a stand today. We'll see if my <laughs> I start going like this. <laughs> we'll go. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds upon those words be acceptable in your sight, Lord. You're our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again, Redeemer. It's all for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. We had a blast a few years ago. We went through the book of Genesis, verse by verse, on Sunday mornings in Adult Bible Center. Took us, I don't know, five or six years? Seven? <laughs> nobody, know, nobody knows for sure. It's lost in the mists of time. But uh, we discovered foundation after foundation after foundation of spiritual truth and the reality of the true history of Genesis. It was such a wonderful time. So just briefly to, to, to ramp it up, because Exodus continues and builds upon those foundations of Genesis. So quickly, some of those basic, uh, huge foundations, creation, six 24-hour days around 6,000 years ago. And I know some people online are be like, are you kidding me? You believe that? Yes, we believe that. There's tons of scientific evidence that supports that. Not that we rely on the science, we rely on the word of God. And uh, I was having a conversation with Amanda recently, and I don't use these words a lot. In fact, probably I should a lot more. But we believe, along with lots of Christians in America and around the world, that the Bible is inerrant. Can you say that word with me? Inerrant. That means without error. It cannot err. And a word that's almost um, word for word sympathetic, well, it is infallible. That means it is impossible for it to be wrong you want to put it in different terms. So that's kind of the same concept. But we believe that, we teach that, we preach that, because the Bible has shown itself to be without error and infallible uh, all the thousands of years of its existence. And so we're going to keep on standing on that. So when the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days 6,000 years ago, we believe that because God's Word says so. And then we're not surprised when the scientific evidence backs it up in a huge way. And then at the end of creation, the end of those six days, God said it was very good. And this is huge. This foundation is, is huge. It's one of the reasons why our nation has drifted away from God so, run, run away from God so completely, is because we and the most of the Christian church has abandoned the literal truth of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is why we're in the mess we're in. Because uh, God said that creation was very good, it was perfect, it was wonderful, it was without sin, there was no death. Because death came as a result of what? Sin. Now if you believe in evolution, then we've had death for billions and billions of years, and sin has nothing to do with death. And you have a problem, because the entire rest of the Bible ascribes sin as a consequence of death, and that's why Jesus had to die on a cross, and be resurrected to reverse that curse. If, if death has always been something that God used through evolution and stuff to make this whole place, then we have a huge problem. The whole Bible kind of has a broken leg, and you go, it doesn't work anymore. Okay? So foundations there. Foundation, male and female. That's how God made us, still makes us that way. And that's why marriage has a foundation that only works with male and female. Amen? Yeah. Another foundation, sin brought by death. We'll talk about that. Of 
Fourth foundation, a right sacrifice for sin is the blood of an innocent lamb. We get that in Genesis, and then it goes much deeper here in Exodus, much deeper in detail. And that all points forward to what we sang about this morning in worship. Jesus dying on the cross, giving his perfect, sinless, sacrificial blood to pay the price, the penalty for our sin, to pay the debt. So that foundation is in Genesis. A fifth one, sin without restraint leads to violence and death. Gee, we're seeing more and more lawlessness in our nation here in the last few years. What comes with lawlessness? Greater and greater violence, more and more likelihood of death. And so we saw that in Genesis, it led to God's judgment and restart of life on earth by a worldwide catastrophe. We usually call it Noah's flood. He didn't own it. He just survived it. But it was a worldwide flood. God did that for so many reasons, but a worldwide catastrophe like that, you'd say, well, gee, that probably left a mark on the planet's surface. Suppose? Yes. Everywhere you go on planet Earth is evidence that God judges sin and that you better turn to him to have a chance to be saved. God left that witness on, across the whole planet. Now, evolutionary scientists will uh, laugh at you and mock you if you believe that. But the evidence is crystal clear and strong all across the planet. So that foundation is also laid out for us in Genesis. Um, now the sixth one, last one, current people groups and the varieties of languages across the planet are a direct result of a rebellion of many people against God, and then God scattered by changing their languages at the Tower of Babel. He did that overnight. We also see evidence of that all over the planet. Many cultures have in their verbal oral histories, they still talk about the time where God's changed everybody's languages and they all moved away from each other. It's, it's not just a, a myth and a fairy tale, people. It's literal history. The Bible says God did it that way. It happened that way, and here was the result. And the planet, uh, the evidence of it bears it out. So all those foundations, those are the big ones. The last huge foundation of Genesis leads us right into Exodus this morning. It's the call and creation of a nation called Israel. It begins with one man, Abram, and his wife, Sarai. And when God called them, they didn't even have a child yet between the two of them. God's promise to them that one of their descendants would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would crush the devil's head and save all who believe in him. That's the final foundation laid down towards the end of Genesis, and it leads us right into Exodus. So with these foundations laid down, we now open the book called Exodus to watch the foundations in Genesis be further detailed and revealed. God's promises and plans are unfolding. You might wonder why we started Exodus during Lent. I think God lined it up this way. It wasn't some grand plan in my brain. You all know that that doesn't happen very much. So God lined it up so that we could again connect the Old Testament foundations with their awesome fulfillment in Jesus. We're, I'm gonna, I think we're going to time it so that we end up with the Passover um, instructions and stuff right around Easter and that Holy Week because it matches up so powerfully with what's happening during that Holy Week. 
So are you ready for Exodus? Uh, even if you aren't, that's where we're going, so tough. <laughs> so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the, for a long time, that was the, the name that Jews still use that, obviously. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first three forefathers that God began to build the nation of Israel from. Jacob is uh, maybe the most prominent in some ways after Abraham because Jacob had 12 sons and they ended up becoming the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what Genesis shows us at the end is that uh, Jacob had those 12 sons. Joseph through a wonderful, amazing, um, shocking story twist ends up down in Egypt ends up becoming second in command in Egypt, right? The seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Those seven years of famine ended up forcing Joseph's family back home in Canaan to move down to Egypt. They didn't know that Joseph was even still alive. They assumed he was dead. So God brought the family down to Egypt and then actually uh, reconciled them, brought them back together. That's where we're at here, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, also called Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons at this point in time. So it started with Abraham and Sarah, no children whatsoever. At this um, third generation stage, we're up to 70 people. Joseph was already in Egypt, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. What's God doing here? He's building a nation. He promised Abraham, I will make of your people, of your descendants, a mighty nation on the earth. That's what he's doing, um, exponentially increasing their numbers. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So fear comes into the heart of the king. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and, say with me, escape from the land. Now, why might that be a fear that would be a legitimate concern, maybe, in the heart of the king? What kind of promise did God give to Abraham and his descendants when they went down to Egypt, God reaffirmed the promise. What? You're going to come. I'm, I'm, you're not going to be Egypt forever. This is not what I have for you. I have a promised land for you, which is Canaan. You go down to Egypt now, but I will bring you back and give you a nation. So that's still being kept strong in their oral history. They're passing it down from generation to generation. So it's not unlikely that the Egyptians knew that Israelites intended someday to go back to Canaan. Well, we know from the end of Genesis that Pharaoh said, hey, you guys look like you're really, really excellent at animal husbandry. You're sheep and, and so forth, and fantastic. Why don't you send your best people over and help us out with ours? So we know that that was a valuable asset to Egypt. 
We also know from the text here a little bit that um, Egypt was began to use Israel for forced labor for a lot of their building projects. So you don't want to lose that uh, cheap, not cheap, free labor, right? All these things are reasons why he doesn't want them to go back to Canaan. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now, that word taskmaster is literally slave master. And whenever you see these slave masters depicted in Egyptian hieroglyphics or in artwork, they always have a, a thick, heavy staff in one hand and a, a long, thick, nasty bullwhip in the other hand. So you don't just carry that around for, for, uh, for show, right? These slave masters did often use their rod and their whip, and people often died in the midst of their work from the slave masters driving them to work harder. So they, they weren't just trying to accomplish a building, right? They were also trying to keep them down and in fear. We're gonna find out that they were trying to keep the men exhausted and not completely healthy, so they'd be less likely to rise up and come after them at war. So it was a brutal time for all of Israel, and especially the men and women who were put to the task. It says, therefore, they set taskmasters, slave masters over them, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. I'm going to pick on a man here for a second. A man who got to visit Egypt and went to Cairo, and one of the, the homegrown guys very openly talked with the people from America about these about the Jews, the Hebrews, building these cities. And he said, very matter-of-factly, they wouldn't have allowed the Israelites to work on the, the pyramids because the pyramids were holy in uh, shrines for their beloved pharaohs. It was their place for eternity kind of thing. So they wouldn't have let the Israelites work on the, the pyramids. This makes perfect sense that the Bible says they, they made the Israelites build the storehouses. So this lines up perfectly with their experience there. But one more thing before I forget, even today when you were further south in Egypt, this goes back into Genesis a little bit, but the locals still call some of the canals Joseph's canals. Even though Joseph is not an Egyptian derivation name. So you maybe scratch his name from all the official um, stoneworks, but his name lives on among the people, even to this day. Folks, that was over 3,000 years ago that Joseph was there, and no doubt built canals with lots of other structures to, make, to um, save the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. So they built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Those Israelites, they're rough and ready. Hallelujah. And, and whose who's hand do you see in this? In the natural realm, in the physical realm, would, it, would a people grow in numbers and strength and vitality under such oppression? No, that would not happen. This was a good plan from the Pharaoh. What happened in the opposite direction? God blessed them beyond what's, what's normal or imaginable, and their numbers increased. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now, why would God allow 
all these factors to come together. Israel is going to end up how long down there in Egypt before they end up start heading for home, for the promised land? Over 400 years. Um, I'm pretty sure they were pretty comfortable in the place of the position until the slavery began to kick into gear. I think God is allowing all these situations and, in fact, precipitating a couple of them to basically force Israel to pull up stakes and go back home. They're kind of stuck in uh, uh, vacation paradise. God says, I need you to go back to the place I have for you. So the Egyptians are in dread of the people of Israel. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly, say that with me, they what? They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as, say out loud, slaves and made their lives, say out loud, what? Bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they say it with me, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So they're not far off in that the great Charlton Heston movie, right, from this time period, from Moses and the whole thing. They're not far off at all. Most of the people, most of the men, were working in the mud, covered in mud, working with straw, making bricks. When the bricks were done, they say the bricks were uh, a foot long generally by six inches wide and six inches deep. When they were done and dried, then they would have to load them. I, I don't know what they used, but they'd load them, and then they had to haul them miles and miles to the building site. So this was their life, covered in mud and straw. Die, death was a real possibility every day you went to work, depending on if you got the lash from the slave master or not, all kinds of things. It was ruthless, literally. Even in the Passover meal, what kind of sauce did the Israelites still use today to dip the bread in when they eat the Passover meal? Bitter herb sauce. Uh, horseradish is one of the, about the closest thing we can think of to it. Why do they do that? To remember the bitterness of their bondage. Okay, so this slavery is a, a huge uh, reality for Israel. God comes to save them, sends Moses here in a little bit to save them from it. But our the, the, the spiritual foundation here is that you and I are slaves, and there's a huge spiritual foundation connection here. This ruthless slavery often in the, in the people's death. The New Testament talks about us being slaves as well with a slave master who is glad to torment us. Amen? So just briefly, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. And I kind of want to do the whole, whole Romans chapter 6, but I figured you probably would like to eat lunch somewhere around noon. So I'm just going to take one verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self, before we got saved in Jesus, was crucified with Jesus. And you say, well, how does that work? If you go further back in the chapter, that happens at baptism. When we are baptized, we are connected to and joined to Jesus' death on the cross. Our sinful old self dies with Jesus on the cross through baptism. Pretty amazing baptism, right? Right? Yeah. Just, just want to make sure. We haven't had one for a while, so we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, say it with me, three words, enslaved to sin. We are slaves to sin. 
Is our, is our slavery bitter? Is sin ruthless? Yeah, because the wages of sin is always what? Death. So we have that truth from Scripture. We also, I think we're going ahead to Revelation, but we'll see. Okay, so in Exodus, God will eventually send Moses to free the Israelites from slavery, and it will be accomplished by the blood of the Passover lamb. Right? That's that's how God saves Israel with the blood of the Passover lamb. Gee, what does that look forward to? Revelation chapter one, verse five. Actually, the second half of verse five. To him who loves us, and it's talking about us to Jesus, to him who loves us and has, say with me, freed us. So if he's freed us, that must mean we were slaves to something. What did, what did Paul say in Romans 6? We're slaves to sin. So it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his what? By his blood. So all these things in Exodus are foreshadowing and pointing forward to Jesus and what he will do for us perfectly for eternity with his blood. Say hallelujah. All right, going back to Exodus. Another historical foundation here. Exodus chapter 1, picking up at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua. Here we go, kids, with your coloring pages. When you serve as, and they were, Israel had millions. I don't know the exact numbers, but millions of people at this point. So you can't have two midwives for a vigorous, growing population, right? Uh, they were probably two gals in charge. They did the training, uh, the scheduling, all that kind of stuff. But the two gals at the head, Shifra and Pua. So verse 16, what's the king of Egypt say to them? When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall say with me, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And we just need to stop and think about this for a moment. His order was that the Hebrews, the Jews themselves, kill every baby boy at his birth. Now we've we've fought with and prayed against against abortion for decades in our country. I don't know. I never imagined, but now we have a few states now that it's legal at birth to kill a child. So we've come to this point ourselves, allowing it as a legal option for our to choose for ourselves. But this is a horrible and wicked declaration from Pharaoh, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, what the midwife is going to do with this? I mean, if you're a midwife, what's your whole life and your devotion, what's your heartbeat? It's for babies. Healthy babies and healthy moms, that's, that's your whole, that's your God designed for your life. So to hear a command like this from Pharaoh is the most devastating thing they can imagine. What are they going to do Verse 17, but the midwives say with me, fear God. Now we've heard a lot about fear in this first chapter of Exodus so far, 
but it's been Pharaoh and the Egyptians being afraid of, of Israel and so forth. That's, a, that's a, a worldly fear. This is a holy fear. This is a fear and honor, respect of a holy God. So the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's a good one. Well, there might be some truth in that. Um, God is doing an amazing thing. He's building a nation in spite of all this slavery and torture and stuff. There may be some, some real truth to this. I'm going to refer to Amanda again because she spent time in Uganda as a nurse, and she spent uh, a few days in the OB, right? The OB wing or whatever. In Uganda, the moms birthing babies, they don't get drugs. Uh, they don't get helps like that, and they're not allowed to scream and yell. So when it comes time, you bear down, you'll be a Ugandan woman, and you have that baby, but you don't scream and yell, and you don't ask for meds and stuff. Only in extreme emergency situations do they get anything along those lines. And they have their babies. Uh, they're vigorous. It's a whole different kind of experience, a whole different ballgame from what we're used to. So there may be some truth in this, but there's probably some deception in this. We're not going to go too far with that. The Bible never speaks to it. Uh, the, the fact that they lied, and that's, that's a wrong thing to do. So I'm not going to do a whole lot with it. I'm going to just see what God does with their protecting the baby boys' lives, right? What matters the most? We don't want to just say the, the means justify the ends, but um, again, the other way around, right? Ends justify the means. <laughs> Whichever way that works. Um, here's what God does with it. The midwife said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, if they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So it kind of sounds like the midwives normally were single gals who devoted themselves 24-7, obviously, to this ministry. And God said, you know what? Because of your faithfulness to me and your faithfulness to protect the babies, I'm going to give you husbands and families of your own. God blessed them. But now, listen to this. Because the midwives feared God. You know what verse popped into my head from Psalm 139? What, what's God doing in the womb whenever he's working on a baby? It says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So the, the fear thing connects with even what God is doing there. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, all his people. He's not getting any help from the midwives. He's got to do it a different way. Pharaoh commanded all his people. How would you like to get this order from executive order, right, from the White House? Every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, and you shall let every daughter live. Shifra and Pua chose Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The 
fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge, the personal knowledge, knowing by experience, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. How did they know that they had to do whatever they could do to save the baby boys? Because they knew the Holy God was worthy of their fear and their awe and their respect and their love. They had wisdom because they had fear of the Lord. In this horrible atmosphere at the end of chapter one, we don't know how many Egyptians followed through with this order. We don't know how often Hebrew baby boys were being drowned in the Nile. But it was really happening. Otherwise, the whole Moses thing doesn't make any sense. How did Moses survive? Well, we'll see. His mom had a really interesting, fascinating plan that worked. It was part of God's plan. But in this horrible atmosphere, God is going to send a baby boy miraculously saved so that later as an adult, he can bring the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. His name is Moses. Next Sunday, we're going to see how Moses is a foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus, and there are more connections to Jesus' birth in that situation and to Exodus. So today we take to heart three foundational truths from Exodus chapter 1. One, without Jesus we are slaves to sin. We need a Savior to set us free. So with that foundation, I just want to ask a question, do you have Jesus? Second foundation, the fear of the Lord needs to be our first, our most treasured fear. Fear of the Lord needs to be first above every fear of man. So the question that goes with that is, is the fear of the Lord first in your life today? Babies are precious to the Lord. And he will not allow their destruction, destruction to go on forever. We're going to see in a few Sundays a terrible judgment on Egypt for this action against the newborn boys of Israel. God will not allow their destruction to go on forever. He will answer So question that goes with that foundation. Are you doing what you can to protect and encourage life in the world? I'm pretty sure that we are. Just to ask the question, make sure we are. Like the midwives who caused the bus, if you do. If you know someone, family, friend, and you hear of an unexpected pregnancy, at least you need to pray. And you very well may need to come alongside that gal and offer your support and your help and anything that might be needed to help that child come to life. We need to be active in saving lives, not just making it a wishful thought. So we'd love to support the 
Pregnancy Center in Fairmont and wherever else the Lord leads you, but we be active in that regard. Foundations, connections, all the Old Testament points forward to Jesus, so we're glad to go there and uh, watch these people of God walk through challenging times. Shifrin Pua. We're going to see Moses and the Israelites, but they feared God first and stood for him in the face of their own lives on the line. And God blessed them for it. Shall we pray? Awesome, God, we thank you for Shifrin Pua, for other uh, heroes of the faith. I'm sure they weren't perfect ladies, but boy, in a critical moment, they refused the fear of Pharaoh. And they treasured the fear of a holy God. And God, thank you for blessing them for it. For making the whole nation of Israel see that you were pleased with them. You gave both of them husbands and families themselves. Thank you, Jesus. God, we're excited too to already see the blood of Jesus pointed to here in this passage. We look forward to seeing Moses as a forerunner of our Savior, Jesus. God, thank you for setting us free from slavery to sin through the cross and the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father. We bless you, God. Help us to grow in these truths and share them with others now and to save the little ones in America too. Jesus, in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.